Why can't I just die? Look at me. My whole life is a little cell in my underwear. This is the only place left for me. And I was going back again and again and again. I couldn't even be out with other people. I was just too crazy. And another thing happened is I saw that not only can AA help you not drink, you might be able to have a life because she had just finished college. I, th- I never thought that somebody could go to college and or somebody could become a lawyer or something like that. And here's somebody that was evidently just as m- a big a mess as I was. She was. She was a mess. Putting out cigarettes with her bare feet and stuff, getting beat up by the other little gang members. <laughs> she didn't fit in anywhere, just like me. And man, I, it seemed like just, it seemed like it was, it was me and June G. This felt just like that. I wasn't alone. She was right there with me. The first time I met her, I just couldn't even talk. There's that person that came to that hole that I was at and, and gave me something, led me out with her little hand. I walked out of that cell and I never was locked up again like that. Well, hello, friends of Bill W. and other friends. You have landed on Sober Speak. My name is John M. I am an alcoholic, and we are glad you are all here, especially newcomers. Newcomers, that is, both to recovery as a whole and newcomers to this podcast. Sober Speak is a podcast about recovery centered around the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, My job here on Sober Speak is simple. My job is to provide a platform to the amazing stories of recovery all around us. Consider Sober Speak, if you will, your meeting between meetings. Please remember, we do not speak for AA or any 12-step community. We represent only ourselves. We are here to share our experience, strength, and hope with those who wish to come along for the ride Take what you want and leave the rest at the curb for the trash man to pick up. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. That was the voice of my friend, Mr. Lee Y, that you heard at the beginning of this episode, and you will be hearing so much more from him in just a moment. I, John M., will be the chairperson for this meeting between meetings, and I am truly, truly honored and privileged to be sitting in to serve all of you listening in. I know your time is valuable, and there are so many things that you could be doing with your time besides listening to Sober Speak, and I really do appreciate you tuning in. If you want to get more involved in this community, send me your email uh, associated with your Facebook uh, Facebook account, and we will make you part of the secret Facebook group. We'll send you out an invitation. And the secret part, obviously, or maybe not so obviously to some of you, but it is to protect anonymity. And there are so, so many amazing, like-minded friends of Bill W., Al-Anon, and other 12-step communities, and we would love to see you in that Facebook group. If you want to follow me on Instagram, you are more than happy to, you are more than welcome to do that. And I am at Soberspeak, all one word. So this conversation that you are about to hear today, I want to get it right into it because it uh, it's a classic. This is Mr. Lee Y, as I said earlier. The conversation is inspiring, uh, unique, and it is complicated. Um, sounds like real life, doesn't it? Uh, and you may have gathered that from the beginning clip that you heard at the beginning of the episode here. Lee has been sober in Alcoholics Anonymous for 35 years. He is such a sweet guy with a big heart and a true love for Alcoholics Anonymous. The clip that you heard at the beginning of this episode describes some of the experience he had while listening to an Alcoholics Anonymous cassette tape while in solitary confinement at a state state penitentiary. Lee was listening to a, a young lady named June G, and that encounter would change his life forever. 
And as Lee puts it during the episode, much of his fist step is a matter of public record. Uh, at one time, he actually committed, excuse me, he actually admitted to 86 burglaries with some local local authorities, and then they just told him to get out of the state and to never come back. Lee talks about Jerry W., the man who brought him the message of Alcoholics Anonymous from the outside while Lee was still in prison. And that's why he has such a soft heart for those people who bring meetings into prisons. He discusses his complicated relationship with his um, impaired sister. And he also talks about the magic of having a daughter whom he adores. You know, one of the parts that I found most interesting during our time together is that Lee had a, what he called a dream while he was in prison. He dreamt that he could someday have a job, have a car, have some clothes, and then have somewhere to live. And as you will find out, Lee has far exceeded his dreams. I encourage you to listen to this one all the way through. Believe me, it is worth the listen. Now, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, please welcome Mr. Lee Y. Okay, everybody. So today we are sitting here with Mr. Lee Y. So Lee why don't you go ahead, first off, introduce yourself, if you will, and give your sobriety date if you would like. Okay, okay, John, thank you. Well, my name is Lee. My sobriety date is November 20, 1984, so I just celebrated 35 years, no alcohol, not even, no time off, you know, no not vacation. Not even on the weekend? Not even on, out of the country. No, no alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, just like it says in step 10 in our big book, that's the miracle. That's a miracle that, is a miracle. Uh, that I have not. Cause I used to, man, I, I mean, I had that, I've got this thing and it was in my head and it told me what to do. Go drink, go drink, go drink. It was a big thought and it overshadowed any other thought, any other, if there was any goodness in me, it could not be revealed because man, that thought of get a drink, get a drink. It was on me. I have recently, in the last, let's see, in April, I bought a home in uh, Sherwood, Arkansas, and my new home group is the Cabot Group. It's in uh, Faulkner County. I'm in Pulaski County. It's in Faulkner County. Right What's it called? The, the Cabot Group? Cabot Group. Cabot is a small town, and it's a dry county. I forgot they had dry counties here, <laughs> but I passed the county line liquor store coming home, and the parking lot is packed. <laughs> so, <laughs> We're not in any trouble. We're not losing any customers because of this, <laughs> the dry county. They are there. <laughs> not losing any customers. Yeah, no, recently. we're He's in good shape. We've got plenty of customers coming. I watched that parking lot, and it is slammed I've right noticed, after work. I've noticed in our meetings lately that the meetings are uh, very packed, and uh, we always say, business is good. And that's, <laughs> yeah. not, that's not necessarily a good thing. Well, we want them in AA. Yes. But we'd rather they not do what they have to do to get AA, to get to yeah, AA. Well. Yeah, well. But, but we all you know, have but our own There's family. only one way here. Mm -hmm. There's only one way, boy. It's, it's not comfortable. So let me start out by saying this. I have, we have over 100 episodes now, close to 110. And I have never had a mishap like I had with you when we met a couple months ago. And I just want to publicly say that I am sorry. And just so everyone knows what we're talking about, we, Lee and I got together to record an episode and it was fantastic. I absolutely loved our time together. And then I got to the end of the recording and I looked down and I saw that I had not hit the record button. So my apologies, but you were so so gracious about it and i appreciate you coming back on to do this again no my pleasure i mean no i you're a great guy another different experience in the program i like new experiences this is good all right so i know a little bit about your background from the last time we got together mm. and mm. Uh, so well let's go back first off let's go back to lee as a first grader what were you like as a kid lee 
Oh, I was, you know, I had a mom and a dad and all that kind of stuff. They had already been, I think, married and divorced twice by, by the time I hit the first grade. My mother was a product of an alcoholic home. Her, her real father was an alcoholic. And he was, he was, I guess I'm a lot like that guy. Because when he came back from World War II, he took a drink. And it was, he was never a productive person after that. And my mother uh, hadn't, didn't see him all her life. And my father grew up in a similar situation. So when they got together, there were two people that, I mean, I'm sure they loved each other so much because they kept getting married again. They, they married each other four times. I mean, and they just could, they had no skills, warped lives of blameless children. Hmm. And I was there and my, I had a sister that was impaired. She'd suffered measles encephalitis. My mother was very distracted. When you're in pain, you just don't pay attention to stuff. And I think you my mother was measles encephalitis. What is and when, that? Well, it, what it did for my to my sister was she ran a very high temperature, and uh, I'm sure my mother called the doctor and said, "My daughter, my baby's got a high temperature." Back then, people just whatever the doctor said, they just did it, and she didn't take her to the hospital. She didn't do she, and she laid there and she suffered brain damage. Oh because of that. And that was a pain my mother carried with her to the day she died. I know. So, so what I had was an impaired sister. Yeah. So what was the, the outcome, outcome was my sister uh, was, was never able to drive, never able to have a job, uh, had diff never passed a grade in school. And there were only public schools back then. There wasn't anything special. Mm -hmm. So she went to public school and just failed. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and she was two years older than me. But on my first, you said first grade. Okay, the first day of the first grade, I walked to the school. Well, my mother took us. My sister went ahead because she'd been there a year already and had already been put back and was actually in the same grade as me. And uh, she said, Lee, your sister's retarded, and it's your job to take care of her. And I had never heard of anything like that. I didn't know anything about stuff like that. So I just, I'm going to take care of her. Why well, I loved my sister and uh, I'm going to take care of her. And I didn't, how do you take care of her? I, mean, I was six. So, you know, I didn't really have the skills, but I had the emotional desire to care for her and she was different. So the guy, people would point out that she was different. The other kids, what's wrong with your sister? Nothing. You know, and that was my idea of protecting her. Deny, deny, deny. And little boys would mess with her and stuff. And that's when I started fighting. And I wasn't, a, I wasn't a bad kid that just wanted to fight. I just didn't know how to react when people would say something about my sister or would be cruel to her somehow, another boy. My idea of protecting my sister was to deny there was anything wrong with her. There's nothing wrong with her. There's something wrong with you. And it would be a whole lot wrong with you in just a minute. Mm -hmm. You know, just, I just didn't know how to do it. But the teachers and stuff were supportive. They, they saw me as being a good brother. Mm. The coaches, I know when I was in seventh grade or something, some little boy pulled her hair from behind and said something nasty to her, uh, suggestive, inappropriate, nasty. And she started crying and came to my classroom and said, you know, this boy said something nasty to her. I, I jumped up, you know, and uh, about six other guys, I was on the football team. They all jumped up. We're all going. And because uh, everyone saw it as a positive thing, even the teacher handed me a paw pass and I went and got the guy. He ran, he took off running. And I caught him in front of the gym and the coach came out. I had him in a headlock and the coach came out and said, what do you do? I said, says something nasty. Glenda. I was crying and he put him in a headlock, and took him to the office. <laughs> <laughs> so it was, it was kind of like I had a lot of support. It was inappropriate. How I was acting was inappropriate but I had support to act that way. It was a different time. And at the same time, it made me, I became a sick person. I really did. A sick kid. It was painful. What do you mean suffer. a sick person? Describe that. Well, I just became, uh, I loved my sister. I had to take her with me everywhere I went. I never was, anytime I left the house, I would take her. I had to take her, take your sister, take your sister. She would be, you know, she wasn't mixing with people and stuff like that. But she, when she was with me, I could guide her into, you know, like she was just there. She got to go, you know, stuff. But I became resentful. I did. I did. I mean, I didn't want to be. I, I loved her. But 
I would look at other people that had normal sisters or normal brothers. And I just, why do I, why do I have an impaired sister? And I'd see other kids that have happy homes, moms and dads that didn't get divorced and stuff. I'd say, why well, I got to have this? Why are you putting me here in this situation? Why? You know, I got mad at God. I really did. I can see it today and do inventory. And I just got to where I didn't care for people very much. And a boy, I expressed that later. I had a, and uh, not knowing what I was doing, but I did. So in your teenage years, I know you got into some trouble. Oh, uh, yeah. That oh, continued yeah. for quite some time. Yeah, Why don't was. you talk a little bit about that? Okay. Well, when I was, uh, I got a paper out when I was like 13. You know, I, when I was in seventh grade, I had two pairs of pants and two shirts. Because, you know, when families bust up and split up and get divorced and move and stuff, you don't have a lot of stuff. And I just didn't have anything. And I'd see kids that had stuff. Man, it, why don't I have things? <laughs> I was a mess. And uh, so anyway, I had a paper route. And once a month, you collect the money. And so I, uh, I would go around collecting this money. And I wasn't thinking. I wasn't planning anything. I didn't know. And I just uh, walked to the door, knocked on the door. Nobody answered. And the thought came into my mind, go on in and see what they got. And I'd never had a drink. I'd never done anything. I was in church every Sunday, you know, but I, I opened the door. It was unlocked. Boy, I just went straight in. Now, here's what happened. And I had to come to AA to figure this out. But what happened when I walked through that into those people's home, I was immediately here and now. I wasn't thinking about my sister and the pain she was in. I wasn't thinking about my crazy family. I wasn't thinking about what I didn't have or how I was different than others. I was thinking about where I was. I could feel it. It was almost like stepping out into outer space. You know, it seemed like I was walking in slow motion. Here and now is a big deal. I mean, there is a relief. I was really, I mean, alcohol put me here and now. So I think it was my first answer to what was happening with me, to the bondage of self, was, uh, I guess, burglary. <laughs> I didn't call it burglary then. <laughs> I called it you know, going in somebody's house. <laughs> so when I was 15 or late, I was almost 15. I ran away. I couldn't handle, I just couldn't handle my home. And I, my grandparents got me, they found me and took me and I moved in with them. And anyway, that's when things, I had a good place. I was in a great place, but I felt guilty. I felt so guilty. I'd abandoned my sister. I really felt like I'd, I'd really messed up, uh, but I didn't want to be, I didn't want that responsibility anymore. I just want to be free and I just, it didn't make me free. It just made me hurt more. I just, something else to stuff down inside. Anyway, uh, I'd never had any toys or anything like that. My grandfather got me a BB gun, man. I liked that. And I knew a brand new obsession, BB gun. And I would shoot 10 cans and stuff. And when I was aiming and doing that, another thing that brought me here and now one more thing, and of course, I was, I love that BB gun. It was, man, I, I slept with the BB gun. <laughs> I, mean, I did. I carried it with me everywhere. But one day I was 15 and a car pulled up across nearby, almost across the street. I saw something. Wow. Out of the car stepped a cheerleader. Boom. I, I, that's when I dropped the BB gun. <laughs> uh. Man, no more BB gun now, baby. <laughs> I found something. I looked at her and went, oh, my God. She had a cheerleading outfit on with the pom-poms and everything. And she ran. She ran. I, I moved in slow motion when I was burglarizing, well, visiting people's homes. When they were <laughs> but she ran in slow motion. And it was another thing. I looked at her and I didn't, I, everything in my mind was gone except this instant love I felt for her. So anyway, I, uh, I said, I'm going to tell her I love her. I'm going to tell her, you know, I'm gonna, you got to have a plan. That's my plan. Tell her, tell her. And then she'll love me probably. You know, we were at school and she walked in the classroom and I, I just froze. I became just like a statue. I, I was, my mind was racing. I, I couldn't breathe. My, I couldn't breathe in and out. I, uh, I had sweat, sweat popped out. So anyway, I had to walk out. I had to leave the classroom. I thought I was about to die. I became so, so withdrawn and lost. I'm getting close to having my first drink. And uh, that's what really happened. One, uh, I, I, would, I went to a ball game. And after the ball game, they had dance in the gym. My plan was to visit, see her and dance with her and tell her I love her, hold her. 
And then I was kiss her, you know, and try to get her to go under the bleachers, you know, where the magic <laughs> is. But uh, I'd never done any of those things. But what was my plan? And so anyway, I couldn't move. I couldn't. I was frozen again. Bondage of self, just like it says on page 63. I was a guy looking for something to free me from the bondage of self. And she looked like she could do that, but I couldn't move. I couldn't approach her. One day when my grandparents were gone, 15 years old, buddy of mine came over with two bottles of Boone Farm, Strawberry Hill. That's what happened. Mm -hmm. And man, I did not know. I mean, 15 years of complete bondage of self, withdrawn, resentful, lost in myself, basically, really just a hurting, hurting kid. And I drank one bottle real fast. I don't know what he was doing. I, I, I drank it and uh, I had that reaction. I had that magical thing that happened, the intoxication. But it wasn't like, I mean, you know, it, I had a different reaction than normal people had because I just, you know, Everybody's a little crazy when they drink, but I had the full thing that alcoholics get. The thing my grandfather had mm -hmm. that came back from World War II. I had the bug. And I ended up immediately up on the roof of my grandparents' house screaming my, my declaration of love for this girl. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I mean, it was just, I love you, I love you, I love you. And she came outside. And her parents came outside I bet. many other neighbors came outside <laughs> and i just you make the star shine you make the sunrise and she just buried her face in her hands just oh my god i'm so embarrassed and i knew instantly when i saw her do that that she loved me you know uh, <laughs> that she wanted me she yeah. wants me she wants me and uh, alcohol had done something for me spectacular faster than a speeding bullet i think i jumped up there able to leap tall buildings i think i jumped on the roof <laughs> i mean i uh i became omnipotent that feeling of omnipotence and freedom just absolute freedom and i, I knew i was going to drink again i knew it i want to drink this stuff the rest of my life that's when things changed for me you know sandy b used to say there's three things that happen in the lives of uh members of Alcoholics Anonymous that impact our lives, the most, most powerful impact on our lives. Of course, for an alcoholic, the first one would be that first drink, that first time that it happened, that the magic came, you know. And after that, the second event would be going through the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous. Mm -hmm. And the third and most important, most powerful thing that can happen to an alcoholic is in step 12, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps. So I've had all three of those, but we seem to have those in common. We that stick around and get this deal and want to keep having it. We stay active in Alcoholics Anonymous day at a time, you know. Uh, like Sharon C. says, we get sober feet. We get sober feet. Yeah. I've never heard that one. Oh, oh, yeah. It's not my, I don't get sober mind. I still don't have a very sober mind, but I have sober feet. I know what to do. I do the things that I've been told to do and shown to do. That I'm telling others to do. And that it's what I do here that keeps me sober. You know, I my buddies, we they wanted to drink, I wanted to drink, and I we didn't have any money. No money, want to drink. And we didn't have my family that didn't drink, you know. So uh so how are you gonna get money? I I instantly knew because <laughs> I already knew. I already knew, and I looked at him and said, Let's steal it. And they looked at me like, what? Where are we going to steal it? I said, I can show you right now. And boy, I, we became pariah in that little community. I mm. already had the bug. I had it. Uh, adding alcohol to my body was like, I've heard Donna E say out in Billings, Montana. She goes, adding alcohol to my body is like throwing a match in a bucket of gasoline. Mm. Whoosh. It was like that for me. I didn't have that period of finished school. Uh, go to college, meet someone, get married, have a career, be, do something in the community, make an impact in the community, be a, be a good force in the community, do social things, have social drinking. I didn't have any of that. I had, you know, I had game on. I did. I did. Alcohol created for me an unreal world, and I drank to live in it. Mm. And it was the best I'd ever felt in my life. It was. I was free. It, it was a false freedom, but it seemed free. Mm -hmm. It seemed so free. I wasn't thinking about 
the guilt of my sister. I wasn't thinking about, is she safe? I was thinking about me. And I was bizarre. I was a bizarre young kid with other kids and doing crazy stuff and getting into trouble. Did you recognize at the time you were bizarre, so to speak? I didn't. You know, it's like I didn't have a chance to even think about it. I mean, my only thought was feel differently, feel differently, driven by, you know, that obsession, I suppose. I wanted not to hurt. I wanted not to feel guilty. I didn't want to think about stealing. I didn't want to think about anything. Everything I was doing was something that, you know, you don't do if you're sober, if you're connected, if you're conscious. Did you realize inside all no. that stealing was? No, I didn't. I, you got you to be turned on inside your heart to be able to even mm -hmm. recognize any of that. I was, you know what? I didn't have anything. Why do those people have stuff? They got things. They got a. They got mom and a dad. They got. They got a brother and a sister. Where? Why do I have what I have? No, I really. I felt like that. You know, the world had done me wrong. Kind right, of. Right. You were entitled to it somehow to level the playing field. And at the same time, I don't. I never hesitated. There wasn't a breath between me and the next thing that would get me a drink. It really was game on. Hmm. After I experienced alcohol i wasn't visiting people's homes before i experienced alcohol except when i had that little paper out you know but i knew what to do so anyway that's what i did i was in trouble at 16 years old in trouble 17 years old in trouble okay trouble. so yeah then we have this period what age did you sober up 30 30 could have got sober at 19 had plenty of alcoholism at age 19 Caught, got my first prison sentence at 19 Grown man's penitentiary. Wow. And uh, they had AA. I, was, I remember being there. AA. It never crossed my mind. I don't have a problem with alcohol. It was pretty much all the prison time for theft? Yeah, it was. Uh, I was actually, I'd added some other stuff besides alcohol. And we were robbing a drugstore. I was 19. And wow. we went in, get that, got busted. My buddies were coming back from Vietnam. When I was 18, they're all, guys were all coming back, and they brought heroin back. And I'll try that, too. You know, I, I looked up to these guys, and I would have done anything to, to get their approval, mm. to not seem weak or scared. And I just, yeah, I'll do it. Boom. So, you know, of course, I had alcoholism. I'm going to drink, but I had added that. <laughs> that, you know, that accelerated the bottom. So give me a walk through those years from your teenage years up to 30. <sighs> yeah. Okay. Real quick. Cause it never changed. I'm incarcerated. I know if I ever get out of this place, I'm going to be a different guy every time I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to, I want, I have big dreams. I want to have a job. I want to have a car. I want to have some clothes and I want to live somewhere. Those were my dreams. Job, car, clothes, live somewhere. And I couldn't do it. I could not do it. I'd get out of some bit incarceration and I'd take a drink, clueless, no thought. And, you know, I was back in there before I knew it. You take the next 10 years of my life, just stick them in the garbage can because I was either on the streets uh, and alcoholism is progressive. I was 27 years old. I walked out of penitentiary. And took a drink and it was my mind instantly was get the money, get loaded, get loaded, 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 get the money, get loaded, get loaded. I mean, I had progressed to where that's all I could think. My family didn't see me. I was a guy out there ripping and running, just trying to get it done. Get some money, get some money, get some money and then get the cure, get my cure, get my cure. And I'd already had a couple incarcerations, lengthy incarcerations, big, big sentences. You know, you can learn a lot, pick up a lot of pointers from uh, other people that have, you know, <laughs> gathering experience from others. There's a lot of experience. Experience, strength, and yeah, not so much car, hope. Start but... a car, out a key, open a safe, <laughs> you know, how to, how to beat somebody in the head or how to point a gun at somebody and scare them real bad. <laughs> I want to tell you, though, I was breaking and entering, but you get a little more money with a gun <laughs> mm -hmm. Woo, and a little more trouble, too. So anyway, when they threw the net over, I, uh, you know, I've moved back to Arkansas just recently. I was gone for 35 years 
But when I left, the police, you know, the officer Mark uh, Stafford, a good officer, they called me up and said, Lee, if you'll come down here and confess to everything you've done, we won't charge you for any of it. And you have to leave. You leave here and never come back. When they say leave, leave the state, right? Yeah, leave the state. Leave here and never come back. This, I mean, and uh, I uh, had a, a woman that I was with had gotten in some trouble, and they were going to count what I do t- towards her to help her. And uh, that's who came up with this idea. And a woman, you know, I was I had another weakness besides drugs and alcohol, you know, <laughs> real cute girls, boy. And she was she had me. And I okay, I'll go down there. I confessed to eighty six burglaries. All this is a matter of public record. A lot of my fifth step was, you know, was in the newspapers and stuff or on uh, documents at the police station. So anyway, I was supposed to leave forever. And that's when I moved to Florida. And over the next nine months in Florida, I did the same thing I'd been doing in Little Rock in central Florida there. Mm-hmm. And, there, and uh, November 13, 1984 is when they threw the net over me down there. I uh, don't count that as my sobriety date because they, uh, I'd been on the methadone clinic for a long time and they gave me a few doses of methadone and because I had abused it in the past. I went, I went ahead and counted that as part of, you know, my sobriety day, but that's not for everybody, but it certainly is for me. I was methadone impaired me. It did. So I count it. Don't do methadone one day at a time. (laughs) I don't have a problem with that though. Alcohol is the main thing. Drugs. I quit using drugs many times. I never stopped drinking. I never stopped drinking. It never crossed my mind. It never did. Alcohol was the main thing when I look back today. I'm an alcoholic. When I drink, I cannot control the amount of alcohol I drink. And I always do it again. I do it again. I get the money, get loaded, get loaded. And many times I wasn't going to use drugs and I'd go out and drink. Mm-hmm. And then I'm using drugs. Alcohol would open a door in my mind that would make anything okay anything and it would it would ignite that craving for something even more you know so alcohol if i don't drink i don't think i'll ever do anything like that again yeah let me do a little intro a little intro here we will be continuing our conversation with lee in just a moment just a reminder you were listening to sober speak you can find us on the world wide web at soberspeak.com and there you will find approximately uh, 110 or so other uh uh, episodes you can listen to for free. You can also find the donate button on our website and you can use that if and only if the spirit moves you to do such. Please keep in mind, this is a podcast funded by you, the listener. Sober Speak is a self-supporting organization through our contributions. We are not allied with any sect, denomination, politics, organization, or institution. We do not wish to engage in any controversy, neither endorse nor oppose any causes. All right, now back to Mr. Lee. All right, so I want to ask you a little bit about your relationship with your sister. So obviously there was that time when you were growing up, you were her protector and such, and then you went off and did everything that you did in the prison system and all that, and you're about to get sober. What is happening in, in her life? Uh, are, are you talking to her at this time? My sister cherished me. And I always felt I just had some weird pain in me around my sister. I, I loved her, but watching her suffer and watching her be different was there was never a moment in my life uh, that it didn't hurt. I just it just was a painful, painful thing. And she loved me. And when people love you that much, they they, they can't take their hands off of you. They can't leave you alone. They can't give you a breath. They get really right on top of you. You know, adults do that with their children. I, I have been guilty of that with my own kid, just loving her so much. Can't get enough of her and actually push people away. As much as I cared for my sister, it was just a painful, painful thing. Always was. She uh, passed away November 21st, 2014. She died in a house fire. Horrible, horrible, horrible death. I'm sure. I mean, my cousin was a captain of the fire department. He goes, Lee, she, the smoke got her. She probably never even moved out of bed. So, uh, you know, I don't want to sit and think about my sister anymore. You know, I believe in afterlife and all that kind of stuff. So uh, I just feel like my sister set free from uh, 
a body and mind that never really didn't do, didn't take care of her very well while she was here. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, she was a good person, a loving person, just impaired, just a child. She lived her whole life as a child. I don't know why that was necessary. I don't know what God's big plan is. We just trust God. You know, things happen, stuff happens. And you just have to keep going and trust God with that. And one day we know, you know, we don't know here. You know, we have to believe God is fair, that God is just, and that God, uh, he loves us. I mean, that's the thing that I, it took me some time in sobriety to figure that out. But God put something in my life that changed and, and helped me to see that. I was praying about that today. Anyway, I'm in county jail now. I, the last three years of my drinking is by the grace of God. I don't know how many times emergency vehicles came out. I have a hazy memory of flashing blue lights and red lights. Uh, my head busting open, being placed in some facility. Just wide open out there all the way. And I'd come to in some place and third day they would try to get information from me. And I just, man, I was really, I better let me out. I'd find out there wasn't handcuffs on me. I said, I don't have to stay here. <laughs> and so let, I'm leaving. And I was big. I was big. Stealing was a big part of my deal. So I could run almost full speed with a washing machine. <laughs> and I was, by that time I'd gotten big and I could get it done. And, uh, I was 28 years old. I was running down the street with my grandmother's TV my mother was chasing me going, and I was screaming back at her. Oh, I'm going to bring her another one next week. I'm going to do the right thing. <laughs> but I had to have them. I had to have $50 right then. So anyway, you know, and, but in my mind, I was doing the right thing. And I got her another one, you know, mm. poor somebody and good for my grandmother. Mm. So we're getting up to AA now. So what yeah. brought you into the program? You know, they always say, what was oh, the final straw that broke the camel's back? Well, I'm in jail and I'm separated from alcohol. And uh, so I don't have anything. All I've got left is, is this mind. You know, I'm not affected by the allergy because there's no booze. Now I'm affected. It's just, just the obsession, just an obsessed mind. And I was a phew, I had magical superpowers. It's, you know, God, I felt like God was unfair in some ways, but then he gave me these magical, super special powers that not everybody had. Really? And yes. And I would sit in the jail in, in, in population and out there among all the other inmates. And I could look at someone and I could read their minds. Right. <laughs> and then I could, I could tell the future. You know, I just felt like that guy might, I think he's thinking about hurting me. And I just, I would, that, that thought would build and build and build until I would show out. So I went to lockdown seven times real quick. And uh, I, I was a management problem. I couldn't be good in jail. I couldn't, I couldn't, you know, I just, and confinement, they, the, well, you have your underwear and then they just lock you up. And, uh, and I, and it was no fun in there because then I, all I had was my thoughts, memories, regrets, the pain of the pain past but i i one day i was standing there and all of, in in the population and somebody said AA meeting my first thought was why would they have one of those here i mean i, I was totally just clueless AA. and my first ex-wife i was communicating with her and she said if you hear that they have AA, go to AA because it'll help you when you go before the judge he'll he'll find out you're going to AA and you're in a lot of trouble but it, it, it can't hurt you know you go to AA. So I'd always heard, well, you try to get treatment, get treatment, you know, get some treatment and uh, that'll help you, you know, when you go before a judge. So anyway, I went to AA uh, for a little help with the judge. Guy named Jerry W. Man came to a jail. That's what happened to me. I, I Man came to a jail. This guy named Jerry. That was my AA. He was my AA. So Jerry W., he was bringing in meetings from the outside? Yeah. He was a Vietnam vet. And he had had, he had four years of sobriety. And one day I, I started going to those meetings on Wednesday night. I'd been to a few and uh, he brought a big box in and had, he says, these are big books. And my group has donated these big books. Man, I didn't big book. I didn't want a big book. I didn't want a little book. I didn't want any <laughs> books. The guys I hung out with 
we didn't hang around libraries and there was nothing in that for me. Big book. I sure don't want a big one. And then he goes, they're free. Well, I was the first one over there. Give me my free book. I want my free book. Boy, how many free books can I have? You know, give me that free book. It's a pretty big book. It's become probably worth something. And uh, I got my big book. And then, of course, I show out. I'd, I'd have I'd use my magical superpowers and get in trouble. And this was the last time I'd gotten into trouble. It was my seventh uh, confinement trip. And I uh, had that big book. And they came. They're going to take me in, you know, strip down. And I said, hold it. I'm taking my book with me because I'm in the program. All the other guys in AA put their head down. Oh, God, don't tell them you're in AA. <laughs> Nobody will want to come to AA if they know you're in it. You're the worst example of AA there is. And so, man, I had my underwear and my big book, and they locked me in that hole. Bang. Then I'd sit up straight and scream because my mind would start. And I'd start screaming and just scream and scream and scream in there alone and lost just me and the pain of everything, all that regret, all that madness, just me and nothing looked good. Everything looked bad. I had charges in front of five judges, you know, Leffler Davis, Salvi McGregor and Judge Stroker. I knew where I was going. I just, are they going to, you know, how much time am I going to get this time? Third time, boom. I knew they were going to bury me, and with good reason. What happened is, I, you know, I just, I was 30 years old. I was in that confinement cell with the big book in my underwear, and I just uh, screaming. And I would, I couldn't stop thinking about stuff like when I was 27. I'd gotten out of penitentiary. My mother had allowed me to live with her. It was late one afternoon, about 5 o'clock. My sister, who is, was impaired, she would be violent. She could be violent. And, uh, What's necessary is when she would just go off like that, it, you would have to restrain her, mildly restrain her and talk to her, calm her down. And my mother was yelling for me, Lee, your sister, she's being violent. Come and help. Come and help. And I knew what to do. I knew exactly what to do. I'm going to take my sister's hand and start laughing and she'll start laughing and we'll just get past. I was better at it than anybody. She loved me. She wasn't too sure about the rest of it, <laughs> but God, man, I knew exactly what I was going to do. I'm going to get up. I'm, I was fully clothed in bed five that afternoon. I'm going to roll up. I'm going to walk through the kitchen, go into the living room. I'll take my sister's hand and talk to her. I wasn't confused. I knew exactly what to do. But when I got up and I walked into the kitchen, I saw something that nobody ever did around a guy like me. When my mother was struggling with my sister, she dropped her purse into a chair. And when I saw the purse, the drink thing hit me, just bang, struck me. I was struck. I was like Fred. I was struck with the thought. And I was struck. And I took $20 out of a purse and a car keys. And I took her car and I drove off and got drunk. But when I came back at midnight, I walked through the front door and uh, the walls, the couch, the floor, everything's covered with blood. My sister had gotten a pistol and shot my mother in the face. I was very drunk and uh, wasn't there very long at all, 10 minutes maybe. My uncle and one of my, and my grandfather came in. They said that they, my mother had, they'd, had stabilized her. She was in the hospital. She was stable. They believed she was going to live. Let's go to the hospital. But uh, I couldn't go to the hospital. It was two days before I could go to the hospital. Because I kept drinking. Because once I add alcohol to my body, I have no control over the amount of alcohol that I drink. Uh, step one, I, I drink until I have to get sober. Dash. I stay sober till I have to get drunk. And uh, so I, that became very, I became aware of that thing laying there in that confinement cell. It just, I can, you know, on page 44 of our book, it says, if when you honestly want to, you find that you cannot quit entirely, or when drinking, you have little control over the amount you drink, you're probably an alcoholic. You know, and I read two paragraphs about a jaywalker. I said, this is me. This is me. You know, uh, you wonder why Bill Wilson put comical stuff like that in our text. A jaywalker? He did that for guys like me. 
That was right where I was. One other thing that happened that was a special thing. In one of the AA meetings, they brought a tape player, a little portable tape player, and a tape. And they played the tape of an AA person in AA talking, telling her story. And I really had a reaction to that. Something happened hearing that young girl talk that shook me, and I became real emotional. So anyway, being a management problem, I mean, even the guards, they're not bad guys. I mean, there may be one or two that's nuts, but most of those guys are just guys, you know? I was trouble. I was so much trouble. How, what can we do for this guy? He's, he's not bad. I mean, me, you know, what, they were looking for, what can we do to help this guy? He's nuts. And one of the guards brought me the ta- that portable tape player and that tape. I mean, that was, that's against the rules. But they knew that something had happened when I heard that. And for the next 14 days, I just played that tape over and over and over and over. And, over. and it was June G. <laughs> June G from Los Angeles. She had just graduated from college. She was about to start law school. And what happened, she, she was a person that wanted to die. She said all her life, all she wanted to do was die. And she, and man, I identified, I said, why can't I die? Why can't I die? Why can't I just die? Look at me. My whole life is a little cell in my underwear. This is the only place left for me. And I was going back again and again and again. I couldn't even be out with other people. I was just too crazy. I could, I, and she and, and another thing happened is I saw that not only can AA help you not drink, but you might be able to have a life because she had just finished college. I, I never thought that somebody could go to college and, you know, or somebody could become a lawyer or something like that. And here's somebody that was evidently just as a big a mess as I was. She was. She was a mess. Putting out cigarettes with her bare feet and stuff. Just getting beat up by the other little gang members. <laughs> she didn't fit in anywhere, just like me. And man, I, it seemed like just, it seemed like it was, it was me and June G. It just it felt just like that. I wasn't alone. She was right there with me. And I've had a, she's a friend of mine now, you know. We talk, text each other. She knows about, I know about her kids and she knows all about mine and stuff. She's a friend of mine. I went, God, the first time I met her, I just couldn't even talk, you know. There's that person. There's that person that came to that hole that I was at. And, and gave me something, led me out with her little hand. I walked out of that cell, and I never was locked up again like that. I never went to confinement. I, I got with Jerry. I said, man, tell me what to do. Tell me what to do. She, he looked at me. He goes, I can't tell you what to do. You're not going to do anything I tell you to do. He goes, uh, you got to figure out if you're an alcoholic. I said, man, I, I'm something. I'm something. I'm an alcoholic. I'm an alcoholic. I am. I'm an alcoholic. And he said something that really was a brand new idea. He goes, if your problem is alcohol, cut it out. Stop it. He goes, here in Alcoholics Anonymous, it's a little different. Here, if you drink and you stop and then you do it again and you stop and you do it again, you stop and you do it. My whole life was stop and do it again. He goes, here in Alcoholics Anonymous, we call that being powerless. And uh, we're here to treat that problem. The problem of powerlessness. Uh, your problem is when you're not drinking, Lee, because that's when you do it again. And I, I woke up to that. That's a, that was a big shift because I had stopped and quit and I'd stopped and quit and I'd stopped and quit. But uh, to know that my, if my problem, Jerry said, if your problem is no power, then your solution is power. And the fifth chapter says there is one that has all power. And uh, if I'm separated, if there's something that separates me from that power, that makes me powerless. And that's why we do the house cleaning. And Jerry moved me into that. You know, he didn't say, wait until you get out. I was going to be there for a few years. You know, I wouldn't go anywhere. There won't be 90 and 90. Jerry said, you can get better right now because we've got a book. You've got one. It's called Alcoholics Anonymous. And And it didn't matter that I was in prison. It didn't matter. I could have done it while in confinement 
all I needed was that book and the willingness to, to believe there might be a power greater than me. And I had a real problem with that because I'd been naughty. I'd been naughty and I felt like, no, God didn't want me. I don't know. This is something else Jerry did. You know, Dr. Silkworth did a lot. He did a lot for us. Dr. Silkworth set Bill down and said, maybe you've got a problem when you drink and when you don't drink. Maybe you're bodily and mentally different. You know, brand new idea for Bill. I'm sick all the time. And then when D Bill had that big white light, Dr. Silkworth didn't say, get this man an injection. <laughs> He's <laughs> You know, Dr. Silkworth, the grace of that man to say, Bill, something has happened to you. Better hang on to it. You know, what a great man to do those two things. Uh, had to be by the hand of God. But Jerry did that too, and it had to be by the hand of God. He gave me a copy of a book called Alcoholics Anonymous. He defined my problem, no power. And when I was having trouble with God, he came into the meeting one night. There were 15 of us. And he says, I'm four years sober. I had a lot of trouble in sobriety trying to get to four years, trying to get one day at a time. And the biggest thing that interfered with, with my being able to get this thing, get started even, was some stuff that happened in Vietnam that I never told anybody. And he sat there. He, I've only told my sponsor. I did it in a fifth step. But I'm going to tell you guys. I knew immediately that something that he was going to tell us something unusual. He had really had our attention. He had my attention. And he talked about going and taking a troop of men, leading a troop of men into a, a country next to Vietnam that they weren't supposed to be in and uh, going to destroy ammunitions, munitions and stuff like that. You know, he was in, he was going there to save the lives of many people and he was doing something he shouldn't have been doing. He said, all he could think of was getting his men out alive. He led those men in there. He goes, all I want to do is get them out alive. All I'm going to do is get them out alive. And of course, they crossed every line. And when they left that village, there was nothing breathing in that village. Man, woman, or child. And he had one specific incident that he told us about. And I said, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe he would say that. Why is he telling us that? I couldn't believe it. But what happened is, is he opened the door. He opened up step three for me. Step two, step two and step three. And instantly I said, if God will help him, God will help me. If you can do something that bad, to me that was bad. I mean, God will help me too. Instantly third, the third step became just right in front of me. I moved fast, so fast through step two. I mean, yes, God will help me. God will help me. And uh, I was ready to do the third step. And then I had help from the outside. Outside help doing the fourth step and all that. I did a fifth step in jail. First time in my life. And I told it all. I didn't know if they were going to tell the guards or not. Was that with Jerry? <laughs> no, I did it with another AA member that came in. Another guy. And there was a guy that was in AA that was in jail that had been in AA a long time and gotten some trouble and relapse and stuff, but he knew the steps mm -hmm. and that guy helped me a lot. I did, I did a fist step with him. I did a fist step with the outside guy. The outside guy showed me more. He said, let's look at this from an entirely different angle. And so he was able to help me more, but I did, I was thorough. I was all my life. I've been two Lee's. I was at a Lee that everyone saw that was not too pretty. And then there was another Lee, a guy that hurt a guy that just hurt all the time. But I believe that night I became one Lee. I became a, a one whole person, just, just Lee. And uh, so a spiritual thing happened for me in the fifth step. Yeah. Well, Mr. Lee, we're going to probably have to get you back on at another time to talk about some more of the going through the steps, uh, some additional oh. parts of your story. You're absolutely fantastic. So, Talk to me then just to kind of uh, wrap this up. Oh, say, let's, okay. let's just talk about your 
overall message of what AA has done for you in your life? I, I know it's hard to put it into just a couple of minutes. I spent my first, I got a couple of years in Florida State Penitentiary. I got out. Two men from AA, I'd arranged for them. They came and picked me up. I was active in AA the whole time I was incarcerated. I, my dream was to be, go to get, you know, I'm going to get out and I'm going to AA. That was my whole deal. I'm going to go to AA. I'm going to get to go to AA. AA is my life. I'm going to AA. And I got out and got in that halfway house and I was, you know, went to two meetings a day, you know, all kinds of stuff, just serving AA, getting, get involved, you know, and start doing the deal. And a lot of good things have happened for me. The first thing was I had a job, I had a car, I had a, some clothes and I lived somewhere and instantly I was able to maintain that. I'd never, I'd never done that. And now I'm doing it. I have a job, a car, some clothes, and I'm living somewhere and it's, I'm not losing it. I'm not blowing it. And uh, that those things grow and they grow and, you know, you get involved You know, your first phase of AA, I guess is to clean up your past. And then after you cleaned up your past is get a life, you know, build a life, get a career, get something going. We've got God here to help us do all that. He already has a plan. And then of course, it's what are we going to leave behind? And uh, so I'm in that water. Where, what am I leaving the world? You know, I'm, I'm not leaving more, but you know, so I'm in the third phase. I've done it. I've gotten a life. I got a career. I started doing something. I, that I love. And I just, it's like being on vacation every day when you love what you do. I uh, got married in sobriety and uh, we had a daughter. My, unfortunately, uh, my wife and her mother uh, relapsed and it became, it was just unsafe. You know, I waited a couple of years before I got a divorce. I didn't want to get a divorce. I wanted her to get back with the programming. And finally, it just, I had to do it to uh, secure custody to, my daughter would be safe. And that's uh, so why I raised a little girl by myself and uh, with a lot of help from people. And she, this is what happened to me. You know, I was, I always had a little problem with God, but all of a sudden it became apparent to me that uh, I knew how I loved her. I loved her. I loved her. I, I would think about things. Here's what I'm going to do. And so this will when she starts school, this will be ready. And then when she needs a car, this will be ready. And when she needs braces, this will be ready. And I mean, I was planning out way out for her and every day just for her. I was going to noon meetings. So I'd be home at night with her. And I, and it just hit me one day. Uh, if I can love this kid this much and I can do all of this just for her, how much more would, God, maybe, maybe God feels this way about me. Maybe he sees me this way. Maybe he's planning for me and setting things up for me. And, and uh, so I started seeing God differently, bigger, closer, more personal than I ever had. And uh, it changed a lot for me. Everything changed. My daughter now has graduated from college and, and uh, she's off. She's married and she has her own life. And boy, I'm, when she first moved, I missed her so much. But now I just, I'm happy. I'm happy for her. Go have your life. Hmm. And I did everything I could do for her. And now I just, I guess I'll do some stuff for me. Uh, I don't know what, but I'll do something. I'm working. I still work in the job I love. I uh, have a new home group. I'm, I'm able to, this is in this community here. It's not like Florida and Central Florida and Dallas and stuff like that where we've lived. It's uh, I just moved back here. Oh, I wasn't supposed to come back. I was in a meeting when I first moved back here. I bought a house and two, I've shared, you know, I was talking about Mark Stafford, Mark Stafford, you know, getting in trouble. And two officers that are in the program came over to me and showed me their badges and said, yeah, we know about you. You were never supposed to come back. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, they, were, they said, you better go talk to Stafford. And I went, oh my God. And so I went down there and talked with him and, he was, he'd become aware. I came back when I was 10 years sober and started making amends, eight years over to 10 years over. And I would drive around and give people money and places I'd, you know, all this stuff. And evidently when I went to the police station to make amends to those guys, some of those people I'd already seen had called them and told them, we saw him, we saw him. What'd he do? Did he, did he cuss you out? Did he chase you down? <laughs> no, he, he handed me some money. He said he was in AA. <laughs> he seems like a different fellow. And so by the time I went to the police department to make amends to them, they'd already heard. 
And they had a warrant for my arrest, though. They said, we have a warrant for your arrest. I went, oh, my gosh. And uh, But they said, that they just kept that warrant there just in case they ever need to grab me, you know. So uh, the Mark Stafford called the judge. They dropped the warrant, and it was an old charge. That had no more. It, had, it wasn't valid anymore, but, you know, they could have thrown the net over me any time. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, so I moved back. And so now I see Little Rock is a little bit challenged. It really is. There's poverty here. There's crime here. 200% higher than the national average. Uh, and I thought, why am I doing in a place this monstrosity? This is exactly where I need to be. They need you here, Lee. You can be used here in a unique way. And so I'm excited about what opportunities might come up because I love going to jails. I love going to VA. I love the VA because Jerry. I love to be with the vets. I mean, a vet helped me. So, you know, I've got all these opportunities. We're still like, going to many conferences and doing a lot. I didn't get to talk about Roy, my old sponsor that helped me so much, or Leo and some of those guys. Maybe we will sometime, like you said revisit some of it that's right maybe we can pick it up on a second episode because you've got quite a bit of content you can obviously articulate it i've loved spending time with you and uh i, I just appreciate you working with me all the oh, you yeah. have worked with me in order to oh, get this yeah. episode out oh yeah you're you're a wonderful person we're gonna be friends a long long time we are and we will <laughs> probably see each other at crested butte again this oh yeah summer. i hope some other places we well, should stay in touch. We should be. We should text each other and just stay in touch. I agree, Mister Lee. You're yeah. a good man with a good yeah. heart, and you have an incredible story. And uh, that's why I like to meet people like you because I know about it, but I want other people to hear about it, and I want to get it out there. Okay. On okay. So we'll come back. We'll talk about careers. We'll talk about raising kids. We'll talk about getting full pardons. We'll talk about the the judges that came back became my dear friends. We'll talk about all that kind of stuff, working on campaigns for different politicians, doing all kinds of stuff. That sounds great, Mr. (laughs) Lee. Well, God bless you. You have a good rest of your day, and I am sure I will talk to you soon. Okay. I love you, and thank you for helping me stay sober today. Love you too, my friend, and likewise. Thank you, Mr. Lee, for coming in here to share your story and for your honesty, and vulnerability. We will look forward to having you back on here at another time to finish up your story. All right, everybody. For those of you who are interested in getting in the holiday spirit, now a little music from Ms. Wendy Child, and we will be back next week. God bless you. Love you. Deck the halls with boughs of holly. Deck the halls with boughs of holly.